This is exactly right. Hi, I'm Erin Welsh. And I'm Erin Almond Updike, and we're the hosts of This Podcast Will Kill You on Exactly Right. We're back with our seventh season, which is bigger and better than ever. Because guess what? We're now a weekly show. This season, we're tackling everything from long COVID to norovirus, from the supplement industry to IVF, and so, so much more. New episodes drop every single Tuesday. Follow This Podcast Will Kill You wherever you get your podcasts. This story contains adult content and language. Listener discretion is advised. People did age faster in those days in terms of becoming adults, but they were not sophisticated enough to really realize how much danger they were in. I'm Kate Winkler-Dawson, a nonfiction author and journalism professor in Austin, Texas. I'm also the host of the historical true crime podcast, Tenfold More Wicked, and the co-host of the podcast, Buried Bones on Exactly Right. I've traveled around the world interviewing people for the show, and they are all excellent writers. They've had so many great true crime stories, and now we want to tell you those stories with details that have never been published. Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words is about the choices that writers make, good and bad. It's a deep dive into the stories behind the stories. One of my most favorite blogs is called Murder by Gaslight. It focuses on historical true crime right up my alley. The writer behind it is Robert Wilhelm, and he's also a nonfiction author. He tells us the story of Pearl Bryan from his book, So Far From Home. So I am a huge fan of your blog, Murder by Gaslight. I think it's a fantastic, I mean, I've known about it for years. How long have you been doing it? I think it's about 14 years. Uh, 2009 is when I started. Well, I have talked about it. You know, I have a different show with Paul Holes called Buried Bones, where we look at old cases through a 21st century lens. And I've used some of the cases that you have. Of course, we do our own research, but I use some of the cases and I always say I love this website because I consider myself pretty well versed in crime and history. And you do an incredible job curating really obscure, but I think thoughtful and impactful crimes through history. I just want to talk about it briefly before we get into the book, because I love the, the site so much. How do you find these stories? What do you do? It just feels like you pull them out of a magic hat or something. You know, I started taking notes about 2009. Well, one murder will refer to another, and, and it sort of builds on itself. And uh, after I finished with all, all of the major ones, you know, Lizzie Borden, ones like that, it got a little bit harder to find, but there, there are a lot of murder pamphlets online. It's, you know, 19th century people writing about 19th century murders. And what's good is most of them have pictures, but it adds to the the whole effect to have a photo or a, a drawing or a painting of some kind. Well, your stories I find to be very well written and very reliable. We've used a couple of your cases and I refer to them in the podcast and the researcher always comes back and says, we've added to the sources, but he is spot on. So that is to me the sign of a fantastic nonfiction author. And I because I'm in, you know, of course, looped into your newsletter, I have seen you send out, you know, stories about the Pearl Bryan book that you have. And that's what we want to talk about. 
why don't we start with where we are in time, late 1800s, and who the victim is, because we always try to start with the victim. So tell me about Pearl before all of this terrible stuff happens. The year was 1896, and she was the youngest daughter of a family of 13 children. And she was the baby of the family, the one that everyone pampered. But she was bright and smart, well-known in the community. She was attending college, which was would be unusual for an Indiana farm girl at the time. She kept her own counsel. She did not have a lot of close friends or boyfriends. Yeah, she became pregnant, and no one knew it except her cousin, who may or may not have been the father. Oh, my gosh. I know our audience can imagine what pregnancy for someone who was unmarried would have been like in the 1800s, but can you give us some context What a woman, what was she in her late teens, early 20s when this happened? She was 22. What would it have been like for an unmarried mother at 22? For her personal life, it would have been, I think, just devastating. Her uncle, who was was the father of the cousin that may or may not have been the father, was a minister, a high-ranking minister in the Methodist Church. According to the statements made by her cousin and by Scott Jackson, who was later accused, she was anxious to have an abortion, Hmm. just to put an end to her problem because she had no other choice. He wasn't, whoever it was, was not going to marry her. So she is 22. Had she completed college by the time she had gotten pregnant? I think she was still in college, but the college was in her hometown, DePaul University. And what do we know about the relationship between Pearl and her cousin? Are we saying this was a consensual relationship or is it unclear? I don't know. He was a braggart. And he would talk to his friends about, you know, how he had a soft snap with Pearl. He could tell these tales about going to her house when her parents weren't home and going to her bedroom and, and things like that. And then uh, when she was pregnant, he sent to Cincinnati to find, you know, drugs to end the pregnancy. But he, he told his friends about it and said that he was, the, he was responsible. He later denied that he told them. His name was Will Wood. So Will is saying that this is a consensual relationship. He never admitted it, though. He never admitted it, right? But he was bragging about it. He was bragging about it beforehand, yeah. When he was bragging, was he bragging that it was a boyfriend-girlfriend kind of thing? Or, I mean, I guess we don't have a real sense for that. No, it would just be the, the equivalent of casual sex. Okay. You know, for our context also, in the late 1800s, would that have been a consensual relationship? Would that have been okay between cousins? Would that have been encouraged or discouraged in their community in Indiana? It would have been discouraged. Cousins, and it would have been discouraged premarital sex at all. All hypothetical because he never admitted to doing it. Yeah. Okay, so she's pregnant, and she has made it clear to multiple people that she'd like to terminate the pregnancy. Is that right? Uh, just to Will Wood and to Scott Jackson, who was in Cincinnati at the time and would have been arranging the, the abortion. Do we believe that she wanted that or what do you think? I think she did want it. And she traveled to Cincinnati alone, which would have been a little bit of an adventure. She had been to Indianapolis once for their school trip. That was the, like the farthest she had ever traveled. Hmm. And now she's going to Cincinnati alone. Now, her parents would later say she wouldn't wasn't gone for an abortion. She was gone to convince him to marry her. So is this in 1896 when she's pregnant and she is going to Cincinnati for an abortion for all we know? Yes. Okay. Will has arranged this. Will Woods has arranged this, her cousin. Right. With Scott Jackson, who had been in Greencastle the summer before. He admitted to going out with Pearl a couple of times, but did not consider her his girlfriend or, you know, a close relationship. It was just friends. And they did write letters back and forth before all of this happened. According to his statement, Will Wood wrote to him and said, Pearl's pregnant and we need to do something. And he sent him the prescriptions. They didn't work. 
And then he said, send her down here and uh, we'll have an abortion, have an operation. His roommate, Alonzo Walling, apparently had connections who knew how to, how to have an you know, abortion in the region, people to go to. Who is this guy? They Both of these guys, are they in the medical field at all? And this is Cincinnati versus Indiana? They were both dental students at the uh, Ohio Dental College in Cincinnati. Mm-hmm. They had met each other at the Indiana School of Dentistry, which a year earlier, and Scott Jackson had to leave because he was arrested in the brothel on New Year's Eve for drunkenness. Uh, and he convinced his mother to send him back to school, but in Cincinnati this time. And they, they just happened to run each other, into each other again and took a room together at a rooming house in a sort of seedy district of Cincinnati. So Pearl goes via train, is that right, to Cincinnati from Indiana? That's right. Is she by herself? She is by herself. And her parents are saying that she's hoping to get married and that's what this trip is about. And that is not what other people are saying. They're saying she's going for an abortion. At this point, she told her parents she's going to visit a friend in Indianapolis, an old school friend. And she didn't tell them she was even going to Cincinnati. So at this point, they don't know she's pregnant. She arrives in Cincinnati, and do these two men, we're talking about Alonzo and Scott, the two dental students, do they meet her at the train station? No, they were supposed to meet her, but Will Wood told them she was coming to Cincinnati on Monday, but she didn't. they didn't say what train line, what time. Scott Jackson went to one depot, Alonzo Walling went to the other depot. Neither of them saw her. So she's all alone again in a a strange city. And the cab driver takes her to a hotel, a reasonably priced hotel where she can stay. Next day, she gets in touch with Scott Jackson at his college. You know, he takes her out and she spends two nights at that hotel. Then on Wednesday, he says, we're going to you know, take you where the abortion is going to take place. In his story, Alonzo Walling took her away to the abortion. He had no idea where or when it was going to take place. Walling says last time he saw her was with Jackson and he never saw her again after Wednesday, but he didn't have anything to do with it. Hmm. And that's the story they stuck with for a year. So essentially, according to Pearl Bryan's family, she vanishes. She's supposed to go to Indianapolis to meet a friend. She, we know, actually goes to Cincinnati. And then she is not heard or seen from until when? The body was discovered on Saturday of that same week, and they were very fortunate and they were able to identify it within another week. And that's that's the first they knew, the parents knew anything about where she was. When the police came to their door and said, We've, we think your daughter was murdered in Kentucky and we've got a bag of her clothing, and they identified the clothing as hers. Well, I mean, how did she end up in Kentucky? How did that happen? It was in the town of Newport, Kentucky, which is right across the Ohio River from Cincinnati. And it was about five miles south of the river in a clearing in the woods. And fortunately for the police, a young boy on his way to work that Saturday morning took a shortcut through the woods, came to the clearing and found the decapitated body. And then he ran and told his boss and that he called the sheriff that it was chaos. Reporters arrived first. Oh, of course. (laughs) Contaminated the scene. But they, you know, they didn't have a lot of forensic to work with anyway. This is February in Kentucky, right, when she's discovered. I can't imagine this is not freezing cold. I wonder what that discovery must have been like. I guess she wasn't covered with snow or anything. It had rained the night before. Okay. So everything was wet, but it wasn't freezing. So a headless corpse, and I'm assuming at some point, do they find the head? They never find the head. Oh, gosh. So they didn't know how they were going to identify her. They started with assuming that Fort Thomas, which is the army fort in the town, was within walking distance of this, of the place where she was found dead. So police assumed that it was a, a soldier who did it. Ford, of course, denied that. They actually had the body on display 
and anyone could come in and see. And there were some false identifications. She had a distinctive foot in that the toes were connected to each other by a web of skin. Oh. And that was how they, one way they were able to eliminate false identifications and also prove to her parents that, yes, this was your daughter. Okay. I had read that there was suspicion that she might have been a sex worker, and then that was dispelled. Right. And you also said that she has a distinctive, you know, physical feature. So I still don't know, in 1896, how does that information get from Kentucky to how many miles away is her family in Indiana? That seems like, isn't it a long way? Yeah, it took all day by train. Yeah, how does that happen? One of the people that came to look at the body was a shoe dealer uh, named Louis Pook. And he could recognize that the, the boot she wore was distinctive and expensive, but a very small foot. In fact, it was a size three, but it was padded with moss. So her foot was even smaller than that. Oh, wow. And there were markings on the boot that he he could identify as the manufacturer's mark. Contacted the factory. They directed him to a shoe store in Greencastle. And that's when they thought, well, she must have been from there. They also had another clue. Someone who had left their husband in Greencastle and gone off with a soldier before it. So they thought maybe it was her. Mm -hmm. So anyway, they had two reasons to go to Greencastle. But when they get there, the shoe store books are all arranged by name rather than date. And then they had to just go down the list, look for the any shoes sold that were from that shipment and in that size. And that took all day. In the meantime, one of the reporters went to the telegraph office to send the information back to his newspaper. And the manager of the telegraph office said, you know, I think it might be Pearl Bryan because her brother sent a telegram to someone in Indianapolis saying, asking if his sister had arrived safely. And the response was, she hasn't arrived and we're not expecting her. Wow. Also, the, he knew that he was a friend of Will Woods and had heard him talk about, you know, abortion and things like that. And he just put two and two together and said, maybe that's Pearl Bryan. So they went back to the shoe store and said, let's, let's see some records for Pearl Bryan. And there were the shoes that she had purchased that last September. And they went to the family and, and they identified the clothing. But it was very fortunate the whole time, that, first of all, that they found the body at all the, the day after the murder, because it could have been months. Yeah. And then second, that the shoe dealer was able to pinpoint the store. And then the third was that the telegraph manager could give them her name. That is all a stroke of, I mean, stroke of, I want to say stroke of luck, but it really... That was smart. All of that was very smart. Paul Holes and I on Berry Bones often talked about, it's just like a miracle sometimes when they solve crimes. And this was just good old-fashioned detective work to be able to identify what, who, I'm sure the killer or killers did not know that her shoes and her feet would be able to identify her. Obviously, they cut off her head to prevent identification, even though she was, you know, more than a state away. Could they find out from her body what her cause of death was? I know she's missing her head. No, no, no other marks. There were some defensive marks on her hands. Okay. Well, there were two two ideas. One's that she was stabbed in the throat or in the head before the head was cut off. And the other was that her head was severed while she was alive. Oh, gosh. And why do they think that? For, for one thing, because there was so much blood in the leaves above the body. Oh. The artery had spurted. Then there were, you know, when they get to the trial, there's some controversy. Was there enough blood to account for a severed head? And then they had an expert witness testify for the defense that if they had severed the head while alive, it would have taken 10 minutes and it would have been somewhat too much blood to continue after a certain point. But it was still the most common theory. 
I couch this all the time by saying just because coroners in the 1800s say no signs of sexual assault does not mean there was no sexual assault. But did they find any obvious signs of sexual assault? No, they didn't. Okay. In fact, they didn't know she was pregnant until the autopsy. Oh, wow. Five months pregnant. Five months pregnant. Yeah. Okay. I don't think the abortion drugs would have worked anyway. So they identify her, and I can really only imagine her family's reaction to all of this. Did they know she was pregnant or no? No, they didn't. The only one who knew was Wilwood. So they're devastated, obviously. They were able to give, give them the two names. One was Wilwood, and the other was Scott Jackson. Wilwood was the one that had introduced Pearl to Scott Jackson. And in the parents' mind, he was as guilty as even if he wasn't the killer or the father of the baby. But he had gone to South Bend, Indiana, to visit a relative at the same time. And Scott Jackson was in Cincinnati. So the detectives and the sheriff went on to Indianapolis to arrest Will Wood. And then back in Cincinnati, they arrested Scott Jackson. And then he made an off sort of a casual remark to a reporter that uh, his roommate, Alonzo Walling, might be involved as well. So the reporter went out and arrested Walling, brought him back to the police station, and they booked him. It's interesting that none of these actions involved the police. The, the investigation was the shoe store. Telegraph operator. Well, now's a good time to talk about citizens' arrests, that, that you were allowed to do that. I think you had to get it. Didn't you have to get a warrant from a judge and then you could go out or, or you just anybody could slap cuffs on you? As far as I know, you, you didn't have to. I think you had to back it up once you brought them in. Yeah. It was something that private detectives would do at the time. Yeah. But it was often they've stolen something and you get a private detective, arrest the guy and says they make a deal to get the stolen item back. In my first season, um, one of the other shows, Tenfold More Wicked, I have, we were dealing with a guy who had an arrest warrant in 1843. A family member needed to catch him. He was on the run for killing his wife and his child. And the family member had to go to a judge and secure a warrant. But the judges said, go get him and bring him back. You know, we'll, we'll make sure that this guy gets thrown in jail. So the family member went out and finally had to get him. But it was very confusing. It just seemed very haphazard. <laughs> Who could arrest who? For what reason? The problem comes in when it's crossing state lines because they were much more severe about that than we are now. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes it would be just kidnapping. And you're talking about three different areas here. So she's found in Kentucky. The guys are from Cincinnati and she's from Indiana. So yeah, it sounds like a, a jurisdictional mess, I bet. Okay, so we have identified Pearl and we know that she was connected to Scott Jackson and her cousin, Will Wood. We have no idea who the father was. It sounded like she might've been involved either involuntarily or voluntary with either of these men, but we're we're not sure. And I'm assuming they never established, you know, the father, who the father was of the baby. Will Wood, of course, said it was Scott Jackson. Yeah. Jackson said it was Will Wood. Alonzo Walling, the roommate, said they didn't know which it was, which was why they, they just, let's, let's have an abortion. We don't know whose baby this is. Oh, my gosh. Okay. So now we have three people under arrest, right? We've got Will Wood, the cousin. We've got Scott Jackson. And then we got the roommate, who was also a dental student, Alonzo Walling, are all three of them under arrest and dragged to where? Kentucky or Indiana? They're in Cincinnati. Okay, so they stay in Ohio and they're arrested. Will Wood was brought by train to Cincinnati and they were, he was told he was just going to be a, a witness. But they had already had a warrant for his arrest in Cincinnati. And when he's talking about abortion, they said, okay, we have enough to indict this guy. We're going to arrest him. And that caused some problems because the sheriff in Kentucky had promised him he wouldn't be arrested. But this is Cincinnati. They don't care what the sheriff said to him. And they had a, had a warrant from a judge saying arrest him. So 
But the judge said, book him and then leave him in the custody of his father if he promises to come back and testify. Because he had to go on trial, too, for the planned abortion. But I don't know if they had really enough evidence for that beyond his own statements. So the three of them are arrested. And is this all first-degree murder, what they're charged with? Jackson and Walling were charged with first-degree murder. Okay. And this would have, of course, resulted in a hanging, I'm assuming. Yes. What is the trail that detectives or the prosecutors can use to prove this? Because isn't this just sort of right now, these men saying, well, I might have slept with her, I might have not, I don't know anything about an abortion. Right. And this is all hearsay coming from Will Wood, and that's it. What they really hoped was that they, you know, questioned Jackson and, and Walling separately. And then one would convict the other. One would bring charges against the other. Mm-hmm. But they st- stuck to their stories. There was some anger between the, the two of them. But both of them just said, we didn't see her after Wednesday. And we don't know what happened to her. Hmm. You know, Jackson said, I think Walling took her. And Walling would say, I think Jackson took her. But I don't know. But the police were sure that it was Scott Jackson, probably with Walling's help. They had eyewitnesses at a saloon near their house. The three of them were seen getting into a Surrey, a horse-drawn vehicle near the bar. And they say, okay, we we don't care what happened earlier in the week. We know on Friday night she got into this cab with Jackson and Walling. So they they really wanted to get the driver of the cab. Mm-hmm. In the meantime, the newspapers are going off on their own. There was a, a woman in Indianapolis who claimed she knew Pearl from the past, met her at the train station in Indian, Indianapolis, and gave her advice on aborting the baby. Hmm. And later she she claimed she actually gave her an abortion in Indianapolis, and then she went back to Cincinnati and died in Scott Jackson's apartment. At first, they believed her, but you know by the second day in prison, she uh, her stories became too wild, and they said, no, it's contradictory. She didn't do anything. But then there was another, another woman in Cincinnati who was Walling's girlfriend, claimed that Scott Jackson had told her that he had a girl pregnant in Greencastle and was going to kill her when she came to town. And then he sent her a letter saying, you know, I didn't really mean that, but she ended up dying in my apartment. That was what she told a reporter. The next day, she talked to the police and recanted the story. She said she was drunk, but she told him that. Well, is she doing that to protect her boyfriend, to protect Alonzo Walling? That's what I think, yeah. Okay. So when you've got these contradictory stories, and I'm assuming Will Wood said, I put her on a train and that's the last thing I know. Is that it? Right. In fact, he denied even driving driving her to the train station, even though her parents saw her get into his carriage. With these two men, they have contradictory stories. Do we have any physical evidence anywhere? Is there blood? Are there tools? What about the crime scene? What do they think actually happened moving forward? They had her clothing, you know, because she was she was staying with Jackson. They were dumping her clothes down sewers and over the bridge to hide the evidence. But very little physical evidence. It was all hearsay, pretty much. They could not find blood. There was nothing where they could even identify where this happened. There was a pair of pants in Walling's locker that had mud similar to the scene. But they were Jackson's pants. (laughs) And it doesn't even matter, right? That's nothing. Yeah, it is nothing. How is Pearl framed in 1896 newspapers 
this is a woman who is pregnant. She's unwed. She's going for supposedly an, an illegal abortion. So are they framing her as a victim or, or are they blaming her? What are they saying? Definitely a victim. Okay, good. And she was, she was considered a very nice, proper girl. Her girlfriends from school, from high school, would say things like um, she was too agreeable, too easy to persuade. Hmm. They were sort of blaming her innocence. So they are sort of framing her as almost like a martyr in the newspapers at this point. And how are they framing Scott Jackson and Alonzo Walling just as horrible predators with, you know, degrees in medicine who are perfectly capable of not only performing abortions, taking advantage of young women and then killing them? They were as evil as possible. What is specifically tying either of these two guys to her, you know, being murdered and beheaded? Is there anything besides just this story? They know she came to Cincinnati and was seen in Jackson's company several times. Okay. But again, no physical evidence. Okay, so how does the trial unfold? Are they on trial at the same time, these two men, or is it separate? They were separated, and that was sort of an important distinction. I bet. (laughs) As it usually is, who goes first? Yeah, the second person usually testifies against the first person, screws them over, and then the other guy gets a light sentence or no sentence at all. Didn't happen this time, though, because they stuck to their stories. Some moderation, but yeah, Jackson was tried first, and that's really the one that everyone wanted to see hang. So what happens? Does he ever take the stand? He did take the stand. In fact, it was a couple of unusual things about that. The, the defense attorney had no opening statement. He just put Jackson on, on the stand and he testified all day. And the, the paper had almost the whole thing verbatim. You know, it's a history he had, the trouble he had gotten into in, in New Jersey. He was a clerk for the Pennsylvania Railroad and had been involved in robbing money from the till. Hmm. And then again, in Indianapolis, when he was arrested for drunkenness in a brothel on New Year's Eve. But they brought all that stuff out to the point where the, the prosecuting attorney is saying, what, is this direct testimony or cross-examination? Because it seemed like he was indicting himself. Ugh. And then and then he also talked about having sex with Pearl. And nobody can prove who the father of this baby was right. to begin with. But still, he denies having to do anything with her murder and just points to Alonzo. Right. Is Alonzo testifying at all in Scott's trial? No, he didn't testify. Wow. So we have Scott Jackson, who's been on the stand testifying, and he's not saying really that many great things. Does anybody else testify in this case? Well, a lot of people for the prosecution testified, basically identifying the clothes. Her mother identified the clothes. Her sister identified her clothes. The merchants who sold the clothes identified them. And, you know, because there was no head, you can't just point to it and say, yes, this is Pearl Bryan. They had to really drive home that, yes, this dead body without a head is Pearl Bryan. Someone came in and claimed to be the driver, and his testimony was very important. This is the driver. Remind me of that again, who the driver was. Supposedly took the three of them from Cincinnati to the murder scene. And he had a very detailed description of how that went with Scott Jackson and Pearl Bryan in the back of the carriage. And he's driving with Alonzo Walling holding a pistol to his head. Oh, my gosh. Well, tell me about that story. So this guy gets on the stand. He says, what, I picked these three people up, two men and one woman, and the man and the woman get in the cab, and the other guy sits up on the rumble seat with me? Yeah. When he first brought the story to the police, that was wonderful for them. Now we have an unbroken chain of circumstantial evidence and eyewitness evidence as well from the the saloon where they were last seen to the place where she was murdered. But this guy, who was kind of dicey, had been in trouble in Springfield, Ohio. 
had accused someone of robbing from him and was not long after this indicted for perjury in that case. Oh, gosh. The police were totally convinced that this was true. And the newspapers were skeptical. And sometimes lawmen from other towns were skeptical as well. And they actually reenacted the route one night before the trial where he would take the cab, the same route he had taken it before, followed by the police and several newspaper carriages. But it was not a direct route. It was a very strange route. Hmm. But he did end up there. But So there was still a lot of doubt about this, but he was the most important of the witnesses. So is he saying that the murder scene was in the woods where the boy found the headless body? Yes. They stopped at the road, climbed over the fence. He said that Pearl was looked like she was drugged at the time. Were there signs that someone had performed an abortion on her or attempted to? According to the, the post-mortem doctors, there was no attempt. Huh. What does the prosecutor think actually happened. Both men were involved. Do they think that this was planned from the start? Or was there sort of a discussion where Pearl said, I don't think I want to do this anymore kind of thing, and they snapped? They think that she came down for the abortion or maybe to ask him to marry her. And he decided the way out was to kill her. They drove her across the river, took her to the woods and cut off her head. The early indictment actually said Walling held her down while Jackson cut off her head. And who is assuming that? How are we placing Walling, aside from this sketchy cab driver, how else are we placing Walling at the scene at all? Well, he was seen getting into the cab. Okay. Also, the the, the driver testified that Walling was there. But he had, he had no connection at all to Pearl. Had only met her one time. Yeah. They had eventually changed the indictment, saying that one of them held her down and one of them cut the head off, because there was really way, no way to know who actually did the cutting. But because of Jackson's connection to Pearl, it was assumed it was her. But are Jackson and Walling, what are they saying about the, I'm assuming, reliable witnesses who say, we saw these guys get into a cab with a woman? Are they denying? Are they saying it wasn't us? The bar people are saying it was Friday night, and Jackson's saying, no, it was Tuesday night, which was the last night he had seen her. And Walling said the same thing. Interesting. That Friday afternoon, Scott Jackson had shaved his beard off. He'd been to the barber shop, and the barber suggested he shave it, and he did. So he's clean-shaven for the first time since he came to Cincinnati. At the bar, they said, no, he looked the same as every other night. Hmm. So it makes you question whether they were right about the day or not. Is there anyone else significant who takes the stand in Scott Jackson's trial? His landlady took the stand to say that, to her knowledge, they were both in their room Friday night. What? Really? So is she their alibi? Are they saying that's what was happening, was they were in their room? Yeah. What a mess, Robert. I mean, this story. (laughs) Okay, so ultimately, is there anyone else that we need to talk about before we find out what happens with Scott? One other thing that should be mentioned, the driver, whose name was also Jackson, was the leader of, they were called the Caldwell Guards. It was a drill team, black men who were doing army drills in the park with the intention of someday joining the state militia. Mm -hmm. And he said, yeah, we were drilling that night. And then I left Walling came by and said, who wants to make $5 to drive this cab to Kentucky? So the other Jackson took the job. Mm -hmm. But Scott Jackson's attorney deposed the members of the Caldwell Guard. And they all said, no, we didn't drill that night because we had a private meeting. But we were court-martialing one of our members. (laughs) There's, say, 12 people with sworn depositions saying, no, we didn't drill that night. When it comes to his trial, the prosecution brings them in one by one. They all testified, yes, we did. They said that they signed the uh, depositions and they committed perjury one way or the other. Wow. Okay. That's another thing that the police had the ability to say, we want you to go and testify in Kentucky because there's no way 
that you could be forced to do that across state lines. Mm -hmm. So they probably threatened these people. That's just my guess. What did the police want them to say that they were perjuring? Just so that I'm totally clear, these guys. That yes, we did. We did drill that night, and that's the extent of it. I mean, but it was an either-or situation. If they didn't drill that night, the basis of Jackson's testimony is false. Yeah. Are we thinking at this point, based on all of this contradictory evidence, is Scott Jackson being railroaded or no for this murder? I think in terms of first-degree murder, probably, yes. I think if they said said manslaughter, they probably could have convicted him. I think in Scott Jackson's mind, he said, well, we didn't commit first-degree murder, so let's not plead guilty to anything. Hmm. And we'll just be acquitted. Sort of goes back to the fact these people are all very young. He was 26. Walling was 19. Pearl was 22. I mean, people did age faster in those days in terms of becoming adults, but they were not sophisticated enough to really realize how much danger they were in. If they had said, yes, she died from an abortion, they would have gone to jail for the abortion instead of first-degree murder. So everything closes out. There's contradictory stuff, but it looks like the prosecutor's case seems to be compelling. And Jackson did himself no favors, as usual, by taking the stand. Most defendants don't do themselves any favors. And sort of incriminates himself. And what ultimately does the jury of all men, I presume, say? They found him guilty. First degree murder. Is this hanging? Yes. So he is convicted in what, mid-1896? Right. It was May, I believe. Walling's trial was right after, and it was almost exactly the same. In fact, they they sort of, there were some things that they sort of fine-tuned a little bit, but he was convicted as well. So these men are both convicted, both sentenced to hang, and both continue to deny it. They both say the other person really did it, but they're not giving any more context right. to the other person. Okay. They both appealed, and the appeals were denied. It's been almost a year since the convictions. They're preparing to be hanged. In fact, couple of days before the hanging, that's when they decided to confess that they, together with a doctor in Bellevue, Kentucky, which is right next to Newport, they took her there for the abortion. And that's when she died from the drugs. And the doctor said, we can't leave her here. We got to do something. We got to dump her. And they take her to this spot. And that's the inter- another interesting thing is there's no way for Jackson or Walling to know that this spot existed, but it was known to the people at the fort. It, they would go bring their dates there sometimes. Anyway, the doctor takes them there and the doctor cuts her head off. This is what they say, right? That's what they say. In two separate confessions. However, they're sitting in the same room. What? That doesn't make any sense. No. Why are they, after a year and an appeal has been denied, why is this all of a sudden coming up in 1897? To save them from the gallows, hopefully. If nothing else, maybe have more investigation. Because they mentioned the doctor. They mentioned the druggist that supplied the medicine. Once the confessions became public, the druggist says, oh, yeah, they came in that night and bought some ergot. <sighs> they wanted whiskey as well, but he couldn't, he couldn't sell them the whiskey, so he had to mix it with something. Did they not do a toxicology report on her, which would have been something they could have done in 1896? Did they not test her blood for anything? Not that I know of. Wow. So tell me what the combination of drugs are. You've got Jackson and Walling sitting next to each other in the police station or in jail, and they're saying, okay, we have this story. We don't want to die at the gallows. Here's what actually happened. We took Pearl to a doctor. He gave her this mixture of drugs. What was the mixture that turned out to be, from their point of view, deadly? They didn't really know. They said that the doctor injected her with a clear liquid. Okay. They had found cocaine in her stomach. And which was, was common for dental students because they used it for anesthetic. 
Mm-hmm. The druggists said they bought ergot and whiskey. Assuming this is true, whatever it was, it was the mixture of the drugs that got her. So the cocaine would have been kind of numbing. Someone also mentioned chloroform. That alone, if you overdose, you could overdose on. So this doctor's real. This guy's real. Is he, is he denying it? There, yeah, he did. There were rumors early on about this. Mm-hmm. He was sort of a nervous character. Would talk to himself in the backyard and said, you know, maybe he did it, that kind of thing. But it was reported in the newspaper. So it's possible that Jackson and Walling said, you know, this guy's already on the on the list. Let's accuse him. It was at the insane asylum and the confessions come out and the doctors say, declared him cured so he could go back and defend himself. Oh, gosh. But uh, then the family denied it. But the, the druggist stuck to his story saying that, no, that they sent me a prescription and I filled it. Okay, so this doctor got a prescription for ergot. So he wanted a prescription. But if this is somebody who performs abortions, then this would not have been abnormal for him to do anyway, regardless of this case, right? Yeah. So the doctor says, I've never seen this woman. I didn't do anything. And I certainly didn't cut her head off. Right. And Jackson and Walling say, this is our story and this is what we want to, this is what we're going with. What is the reaction? They send it to the governor and the, the governor says, we don't believe that's true. It contradicts your testimony. They contradict each other in some, some of the points and don't accept it. So final appeal denied. And are they both hanged, I'm assuming? They are both hanged. By this point, people really think it's just Scott Jackson and Walling is co-conspirator or just there by bad luck. Mm -hmm. And they're trying to get Jackson to say, well, Walling wasn't there and he didn't do it, so don't hang him. But Jackson won't do it because in order to do that, he has to admit, yes, I was there and killed Pearl Bryant and Walling didn't. And he's not going to go that far, so he let his friend hang whether he was guilty or not. Wow. What do you think when it's all said and done? You've looked at this case more than anybody. What do you think? I think it was a botched abortion. Whether the doctor was involved or whether it happened in Cincinnati and they just dumped the body there. There's still contradictory things like there were defensive marks on her hand. Lots of blood. Lots and lots of blood. There's so much about Scott Jackson. He's a fast talker, sort of a behind the scenes kind of guy. Not violent. He was short of stature, not known to be violent. Boy, it only takes one time, though, Robert. Oh, you're right. It? You're right about that. <laughs> and all of a sudden, you are violent. And this poor woman, you know, she comes down, she's pregnant. Who knows what her intention was for getting on that train, whether it was an abortion or whether it was to beg someone to marry her. I, who knows? We just know she ended up in Cincinnati when she told her parents she was going to Indianapolis. And then that is it. Then the mystery of what happened to her after that is lost over the past, you know, 130 years. And then the conclusion that I drew is that the main reason it's so hard to say what really happened is that everybody lied. So you don't know what to believe. Yeah. And it's not like oh, maybe part of this and maybe part of that. No, it's either or. Almost every every story. And you said Pearl kept her own counsel. I love that phrase. I always forget. That's such an old phrase. Kept her own counsel. And her parents didn't even know she was pregnant. So we don't have a lot of information from her. And then you've got all of these dubious people, including her cousin, a doctor and a stagecoach operator. The only reliable people, it seems like in this case, you've got prosecutors who are trying to solve this and under a lot of public pressure. The only reliable people are the initial, you know, people who stepped forward, the telegraph operator who flagged these messages that just seemed alarming, you know, the shoe manufacturer who said, boy, this is odd. It's the people who were initially able to sound the alarm about who she was 
and what the circumstances might have been. So thank goodness for those people, because if not, this woman would have ended up in a potter's grave and would have never been in any way given some sort of, you know, recognition or any sort of, you know, vengeance here. Right. And if they hadn't found it the first day, as I said, it might have been months before they found that body. Yeah. And then, then there would be no way to identify her. How do you think she is known throughout history? Is this a well-known case? I had heard her name, but I really didn't know the case until I looked at your book. Yeah, it's not as well-known as I think it should be. I mean, when it was happening, it was a national story. Yeah. Papers all over the country. Um, I think sometimes history flattens things in the sense that whole year of turmoil and controversy is just reduced to the police caught the killers and they hung them. Here's the driver and here's the shoe guy and so forth. The details are not there. Because they were hung, there's no mystery in that particular summary. You know what I mean? If you say, oh, mm-hmm. yeah, they were, it was good police work. They hung them. Mm-hmm. Case closed. Unlike, say, um, Lizzie Borden. Yeah. But I still think there is that mystery. This woman on her own, in some way or the other, certainly fell prey to predators in one way or the other, including in her family, potentially. And then... You know, she dies a terrible death based on the forensics that we're talking about by herself. And there seems to be a message in there somewhere and one that shouldn't be forgotten. Right. There are three murder ballads about the case Hmm. where it's sort of a morality play, a cautionary tale. Watch out who you trust. If you love historical true crime stories, check out the audio versions of my books, The Ghost Club, All That Is Wicked, and American Sherlock. This has been an Exactly Right production. Our senior producer is Alexis Amorosi. Our associate producer is Christina Chamberlain. This episode was mixed by John Bradley. Curtis Heath is our composer. Artwork by Nick Toga. Executive produced by Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow Wicked Words on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. And if you know of a historical crime that could use some attention from the crew at Tenfold More Wicked, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. We'll also take your suggestions for true crime authors for Wicked Words. 